This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. We hope you're enjoying the stories of prominent Christians who've been able to find faith and fulfillment in their professional careers. This morning, we're having a conversation with Claire Steele. Claire is currently the CEO of Compassion Australia. She first set out on her career studying mechatronics, robotics at university, and through a series of diverse appointments and opportunities, Move from childcare into some work with consultancy with uh, some of the corporates, finally into her role as CEO of Compassion Australia. Claire, thank you for your time this morning. Welcome. Thank you, Brendan. I noticed that along the way you also picked up a master's degree in divinity. I did, that's right. And um, in between other things. So, obviously, study, um, university life, uh, learning is something that's important to you. Yeah, definitely. I love to learn. Um, I don't love to write. So doing a theological degree was a tough ask, writing lots of essays, but I love to read. Um, I still read widely. I always have a theological book on the go, a a book about the current things I'm working on, and then always a good fiction book by the bed. Well, a lot of our listeners are involved in in school in some way, either because they're students or they're parents of students or their teachers who are teaching the students. Let me take you back to what school was like for you. You said you love learning. Tell tell me about school life for you. Yeah, so I went to my local state school um, and early on I loved maths and science. Um, I was actually sharing this with my team at work the other day. I love that maths and science sort of gave you um, a framework for how the world would operate. You follow these steps and things would come out how they were meant to Um, And I really loved learning more and more about that. But I've always also loved to read. Um, I read so much fiction when I was at school. That was sort of my have a break. Science fiction, Claire? I love science fiction. Yeah, but no, just any fiction, actually. I mean, I went from Magician, Raymond Feast, which was Mm. sort of released when I was at school, uh, to Jane Austen. Mm. Um, Judy Bloom was big when I was in primary school. So a very um, wide, wide reader, anything really. Yeah, and you're one of those readers that that keep keep track of the authors. That that is a sign of a reader when you. Know. <laughs> that's true. I don't like Kindles though, because then I don't keep track of the authors on my Kindle. That's for sure. Yeah, that's that's a lot harder, isn't it? The change to digital. <laughs> it is. Medium. It is. I'm, I'm like you. I like the tactile feel of the pages turning and yes, the smell. Bookmark into the to where yeah. it is and be on the track. That, that, that that's lovely. You spoke about the the interest that science had for you, science and maths, in terms of the predictability that it brought. There was a right and a wrong answer and you could follow that sort of path and the tractors was, uh, let me first ask you being a a girl, a a woman, that's, they're not necessarily spheres of study that, that uh, normally are associated with, with um, feminine traits. (laughs) Is it hard for you to be uh, interested in maths and science at school? Not really. Um, I 
I had great teachers who encouraged me. I also had a great group of friends um, and I guess I, I have this awareness that I actually didn't know it was unusual, mm. um, that it didn't really hit me until I started working that there was any barriers to me as a female entering these sort of paths. I mean, there should have been, I should have been more aware at, um, when I studied engineering mechatronics at um, university, I was the only female in the four years of mechatronics. Yeah. And so there weren't a lot of other peers, uh, female peers, but I, I always felt welcomed and accepted and encouraged in those spheres at that time. So if there are some young ladies in school at the moment who think that maths and science is an area of, of interest for them, you, yeah. what, what, what encouragement might you give to them? That it's such a world of beauty and creativity and not to let go of it. It's just something that if you love it, um, just pursue it. Uh, sometimes you may face opposition, but in the end there's a beauty in it that I think we really need to grasp. And there's a way I think sometimes females look at maths and science that's slightly different with a little different um, creative way. Mm. And I think we need that. The world needs to look at problems in different ways. So mm. I, I just encourage them, go after it full in full pursuit. Yeah, you, you mentioned you had some good teachers. What was it that marked those particular people in your life as being good teachers for you? Uh, one in particular, Mr. Honeyset, he was my um, engineering science teacher in year 11 and 12. He really um, created in me a love of problem solving, not just um, the logic that I originally loved, but that fact that you come up with a problem and there might be 12 ways to solve it, mm. but you have to work out which is the most beautiful, which is the most creative, which, mm. which fixes most of the problem. Mm. And he just really inspired me in that. And I think that's what I've taken on for many, many years, that love of creating creative problem solving. Yeah, that's, it's interesting you, you talk about that notion. It's something that's driven scientific theory for a while, isn't it, that there is an elegance yeah. and a beauty Definitely. in the, the yeah. symmetry or the, the aesthetic of, of yeah. what it is. And not everyone can see that beauty, Claire, but it's fantastic. <laughs> When, when it's true, my come. teenage son hasn't come there yet. <laughs> not there? He's not following you? In no. The <laughs> <laughs> well, mechatronics is not an area, not a field that people are familiar with. You, you mentioned that it's robotics. What got yeah. you involved in that particular type of engineering? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually started um, originally studying environmental engineering. I think that was partly, I studied that because 50% of the students were female. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe this is a more... Um, an easier path in some ways. But I got to the stage where I realised environmental engineering at that time, many years ago, was really about writing reports that were often ignored um, mm. and you weren't actually the ones creating the problems, you were just the ones out, uh, creating the solutions. You are the ones outlining the problems to mm. be solved. And I really wanted to create solutions. Mm. And, I mean, I think in the end my love of fictional reading probably ended up um, me and robotics. I loved Isaac Asimov's stories um, from I the robot. 1920s. Mm. Yeah, iRobot and his short stories. And just thinking, wow, if it's used well, what amazing solutions we can automate. Um, and there was a great creativity in that. So probably not the best well-chosen career, um, mm. but it's something I really did enjoy. Well-chosen in terms of, of uh, profitability? Is that what you mean? Security? 
And just um, back back when I was studying, there were not a lot of um, jobs in Australia. Yeah. Robotics was very much a fledging career. Um, and so to really get into robotics that I was looking at, you needed to travel to Singapore or a number of the European countries. Mm. Um, factories back then weren't really investing in automation. That's all changed now. Um, but, yeah, it was not probably the most easy career to jump into. Claire, I want, I want to come back and ask you some questions about the difference between automation and robotics and where yeah. that is in whether you've kept in touch with that field, but I'd be interested yeah. in some of your thoughts on it. But, but let me take a different tact because you've found yourself in this yeah. engineering. It's, it's um, intellectually creative. It's, it's analytical, data-driven and informed. And, and then you find yourself taking a bit of a different track in life. Uh, end up in doing childcare, which is yeah. quite a different sphere. How, tell me about how that happened. Yeah, so I finished um, my engineering degree and did go and work for consulting firms. I worked for um, Accenture and Macquarie Bank in the finance area. Um, and there was one day, I think I'd been doing that sort of work for five years, and I got to the point where um, I didn't understand, if I got to, to being 70, what would I have achieved if I continued on my career path um, with Macquarie Bank? And I think the things that I would have achieved is not what I wanted to achieve. I would have made a lot of people more wealthy. Um, I would have made Macquarie Bank more wealthy, but that's not really what I wanted to achieve. And that was really part of my Christian faith, which I came to at university, was asking those questions. What did I want my life to be shaped by? And so I got offered, um, believe it or not, a children's worker job at a local church. Um, I didn't have many qualifications, except I think that the senior minister really did like robotics and was hoping that I might create him a robot. <laughs> that never happened. Um, and my husband at that time was um, studying full-time at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. And so I took uh, a role at the local church and was a children's worker there while I started my graduate diploma. And I guess it was a bit of an accidental sidestep. It was out of probably quite a lot of exhaustion from mm. working at Macquarie Bank and just a desire to look at what else um, I could do in life. Mm. So w- what I'm hearing is that you came to this moment where you started to really dig a little deeper into yourself as to yep. who did you want to be and how did you want to leave an impact in the world yep. and yep. felt maybe the direction you were, the path you were, the place you were, wasn't as consistent as it could be with who you thought you were to be, who you felt called to be. Yeah, and I don't. I I think looking back, um, I might make a different decision now because I think I had a very shallow understanding of what faith and work look like. Mm. Um, and I've met some wonderful Christian men and women in um, fields like Macquarie mm. that have just used their skills and gifts to really um, create an amazing environment, an amazing team Mm. that really shows the gospel. But I think I had very shallow understanding myself on what faith and work look like and I couldn't understand how they could integrate together. And perhaps I'd also gone too far down a track at Macquarie that I couldn't pull it back. Yeah, I understand. Sometimes the only way to recover is to retrace your steps and take a sidestep out. Well, let me ask you about your faith. You mentioned that you came to faith during university time. So so, uh, 
while you're forming your priorities in life, you're discovering the beauty of science and engineering and all that, that wonderful ordering of the world. You didn't know the creator of that beauty. No, that's, that's very true. So I grew up um, in a, a very nominal Catholic family. Mm. So I went to Catholic schools and we went to mass maybe twice a year. Mm. Um, we'd often sneak in the back and sneak out pretty quickly. Um, so I, I think I believed there was a God. I think I always believed there was a God, but I didn't know who this God was or what that meant for my life. Mm. Um, and it's funny, I started university at New South Wales Uni and I was studying engineering, so it was a busy day. And I met a lady called Sally and um, the lunchtime group at uni happened on our busiest day, on mm. Wednesday. We, we started lectures at 8 a.m. and we finished at 6 p.m. with a one-hour break. Wow. And somehow, I don't know how, Sally managed to convince me that using that one-hour break to attend the Christian lecture was, was the right thing to do. And I was introduced to a world there that exactly what you explained, a world that was creative and beautiful and had a God, um, God part in it that I hadn't understood before. And not only was it um, a big God, but it was a personal God as well. Mm. And so as I look back on my life, I look, I look realised that I had been trying to, to save myself, mm. be the best I could be, do good, um, really um, make everyone proud, not do the wrong thing. And that's exhausting mm. and tiring and sooner or later it will unravel. <laughs> um, yeah. But he was a God who wanted to meet you who knew you intimately, knew all the times that you were just a false pretense. Yeah. And he was saying, it's okay because I have died on the cross for that. Yeah. And you don't need to save yourself anymore. And that for me was just extraordinary. Um, and yeah, and so I love how big and creative our God is. But I think for me, it was that personal understanding that I no longer had to save myself. So a, a combination of finally getting to understand who this magnificent creative God was who formed a world that you were, you were um, discovering yeah. and, and responding to that, that in of itself, but there was something intimate that yeah. drew your own heart and your own loyalty, devotion. Yeah. 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 And looking back, you can say the Holy Spirit was working, but at that time I had none of that language. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell me, how, how did faith grow for you? You had this moment, this dear friend, Sally, I, I assume yeah. she was a dear friend, became a dear friend of, of, <laughs> of what she was able to do for you, I suppose. You, you came to this sense of faith, you're at university. What, what did you do with that new faith? Yeah, it's funny that you should actually mention um, Sally because she left. She <laughs> left New South Wales Uni after six months and I've, I have not seen her since, but um, oh. I'm deeply thankful for her. So. Um, what what I had, what was a great blessing is I lived in the Blue Mountains and so I was travelling to New South Wales University on the train. So I just began <laughs> reading the Bible um, from Genesis, which I wouldn't recommend, but I just read the Bible from Genesis all the way through um, and then started attending a Bible study at lunchtime. And through that, God just, I mean, the Bible's extraordinary. And for someone who likes to read, it just was this, I mean, confusing sometimes, but this new world 
um, of poetry, of mm. story, of logic. Of, mm. uh, I mean, it, it just blew my mind. And um, so gradually that sort of um, began to just fill my head and my heart. Mm. Um, and then I actually moved from New South Wales Uni and went to a different university to study mechatronics. And um, there I joined the Christian group mm. and started to go to church. And again, God just works through those ministries in my life. Well, let me ask you what it was like, somebody who, as you said, enjoyed reading and enjoyed fiction and yeah. fantasy, but also had this deep desire to solve problems and find the answers to things. What, what did the Bible, how did you, you know, square the corners of, of yeah. being either not just fanciful fictional story, yeah. but neither a manual for this is how things are going to work day by day. And I'm going to answer 20 years on, and I'm pretty sure if you asked me that question when I became a Christian, um, I would not have this answer. Um, Mm. But what I love about the Bible is it is one story Mm. and it's one God and you meet the same God in every page. And so my love of um, logic, the Bible plays that out. I mean, you see Jesus as the total fulfilment of everything through the Old Testament and not only the fulfilment but um, fulfilment in a way that blows your mind in such Mm. a bigger way than you would have thought as you read those Old Testament Mm. stories and prophecies. And so there's just such a a rigour of the Bible and that really filled my mathematical logic love. Mm. And then there's such a beauty in the Bible. I mean, some of the Psalms, which I've really grown to love in the last few years, but even... um, as you start in Genesis 1, the mm. beauty of that creation story, that mm. just draws you in. You want to meet that God. So there really was those two sort of sides playing off together. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And clearly you, you have continued to, to find that the Bible has been opened to you as a living expression of, of that living God. Definitely. I mean, I learn more every day. I was reading um, Ecclesiastes at the moment, which I just think is an extraordinary book feels like it could have been written during a COVID pandemic. Yeah. It's so relevant. Um, yeah, so it continues to be alive and relevant and just you go deeper and deeper into knowing God as you read. Fantastic. So you've, you've come to faith. You, you've advanced your studies. You've gone off into your consulting world. You've had this moment where you've questioned, is my life fulfilling all that I hold now to be most important because of my relationship with Jesus. This, for for both good reasons and maybe questionable reasons, you find yourself a children's minister. Yep. What a change in the high (laughs) of uh, either academia or or, um, business down to working with kids. What did you learn from that experience, Claire? That working with kids is probably harder than working with computers. <laughs> you can't program them, um, can you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no, you can't tell them to stop when you want to. No. Um, yeah. I think I learned um, to be able to tell my faith simply, mm. um, which is not an easy thing to do, mm. and to be able to share it well, but also just the joy of seeing children grow um, in their love and their knowledge and their desire to know Jesus. Mm. Um, I got to work in that position over five years 
And four of those, I was job sharing with my husband. We were children's and youth workers together. Right. And I still see some of the children around the streets, not children anymore. They've grown up and they've been married. And I just am so thankful for that tiny part that you get to be in their lives yeah. and seeing them grow and develop. Um, it's funny, some of the skills I learned um, consulting and um, in the finance world were fantastic, how to be organised, how to um, get things done. They help no end, but that um, how to communicate simply was something that I really did learn mm. during and those years. Stood you in good stead in, in a different sphere of life as being able to boil things down to the, the essence, key details. All, all Definitely has. Carried on, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it helps you communicate with um, all types of people, especially um, becoming a parent helps you right. <laughs> try and communicate with your own children. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier to communicate with somebody else's than with your own. I, I don't know whether you find that. <laughs> That's for <time>. sure. <laughs> yeah. Things can get in the way there. The five years as children's minister, um, tell us yeah. how, how did it that you ended up now in your current role as CEO of Compassion? Yeah, so um, we worked there for five years. Then my husband returned to college so he could be an ordained Anglican minister. And so we stepped down from our roles. And at that time, we had three young children. Mm. So I stopped working at that time. Um, in hindsight, that was not the best decision for me. I thrive on doing things. Um, but you make decisions and then um, you realise in hindsight you should have made others. Mm. But I was then offered um, by our senior minister uh, role at a local preschool, at preschool the church owned actually. Um, they just had, the state government had changed everything and so there was a lot of regulations and new ways of working and he just offered me a, a part-time role, six hours a week, to come and put those sort of regulations and new ways of working into the preschool. And so that began my accidental career as a childcare director, uh, a field I had not trained in, but um, I feel like I had been prepared as a children's yeah. worker and then um, organisationally um, from my finance background and really that evolved um, over a number of years into running preschools for the Presbyterian Church in New South Wales and Ushers and just, again, that great delight in seeing children grow, mm. in working with families to bring families, local families, into a community of grace. Mm. That was always our desire mm. and such a wonderful thing. And over that time, um, the roles morphed, but the same goals were there. And then I had the great privilege of working with Anglican Deaconess Ministries as their Chief Operating Officer, mm. um, an organisation that looks um, to enable women to use their gifts to serve God. Um, and But while I was there, we went on a personal journey uh, with the work of compassion. My husband firstly, yeah, yeah, my husband went overseas uh, on a minister's trip to the Philippines with compassion. I was on the other side of the phone, which is a funny way to experience extreme poverty for the first time. Yeah. Um, and just hearing Matt go through the ups and downs of um, seeing where these children that um, we knew about lived, their communities, their lack of hope, their lack of um, access to food and health. That was really hard on the other side of the phone because I could see that his heart was breaking. Yeah. But then God gradually put that back together throughout the week um, and he came back just saying, I can't imagine anything better to do in our lives than to give our resources and our time to help Compassion do this work. Mm. And so that meant that we went back as the family and a church. We took a church team there about two years ago. And I went through the same experience where your heart breaks 
with the desperation of the poverty that you see and then God continues to put it back together. And for me there was a moment where five women stood on the stage and they'd been part of uh, like a play group with a compassion project. And the five women stood on the stage and they held up signs of how they used to describe themselves, words like unforgiven, forgotten, abandoned, Mm. not wanted, Mm. wretched. And, I mean, my heart broke before just the vulnerability of standing on the stage, but then also that those words could ever describe a woman. I just, it was horrible. But then they flipped them over and words like redeemed, loved, sanctified, forgiven, they were the words that were on these new pieces of paper because the gospel had just changed their lives. And I think for me that was one of the most powerful moments that I've seen the gospel at work in my life and came back just agreeing with my husband Compassion, we want to support that with all that we can. And um, that was the beginning. We, we continued a partnership with our church and Compassion. Yeah. And then when I saw the um, Tim Hanna, the old CEO, retire, my husband said to me, do you think you should apply for the role? Wow. I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so um, but that, that began the process of us praying yeah. and working out whether it was time to leave our current church where yeah. Matt had been serving for 10 years and take up a new role. Um, and so we went through that journey and it was about a year ago this time actually that we knew that I was given the role and that our life would begin to change and it yeah. very much has. And, and, and what have been the changes? If you stepped into your senior role for a major yeah. charity, what, what's yeah. been the impact for you? Yeah, so the um, very personal impact was moving from Sydney to Newcastle Mm. Um, and bringing three children along with us. Um, and we're just thankful for God that how well he's made that transition. Um, and then my husband has stepped down from his full-time ministry and at the moment is um, looking after the house. So we've actually totally sort of swapped yeah. roles, um, which has been another big change. And then for me, just learning to lead a team well of mm. 150 people mm. and then the added bonus of leading a team well in a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah. um. <laughs> a really interesting time, didn't you? All the all leaders, sure I think, are saying, really, right now? <laughs> <laughs> so in, in a practical sense, what has it meant for your team, this, this season yes. of shutdown? Yeah, it means that, um, like many, we're all working from home. Um, so it means that you have to connect in different ways. You can't just walk down the corridors and ask someone how they're going. Um, You have to sort of be quite um, really personal about it and deliberate. Um, So for me, I've I've taken to writing handwriting cards because I think that's a much, that's a differentiated way of connecting than an email or a Zoom call. Um, And then we've had to work out how we work as a team better. Yeah. Um, And, and really how can we connect well? And I think we'll come out of this as a better team yeah. and we'll come out of this um, knowing how to work better. So there's good things as well um, amidst all the changes. It's, 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 uh, it is a tricky time, isn't it, to find that balance? Yeah. I, I guess part of where your soul is in terms of finding solutions and developing systems, yeah. improving systems, is part of the intrigue of mapping your way through this? Yeah, I guess so. I, I think at the moment I really, I, I'd love, I love solutions and we've used technical solutions which are beautiful, but 
my main prayer at the moment is that as a team we come out together well. Um, and that has to be, I think that has to be our main focus. And then because of the huge impact on poverty overseas, how can we be more efficient to send more where it's needed is mm. the other side of that question as well. Yeah, so you're looking not just at the impact on your operations, yes. the impact on the people that you actually want to make a difference. Yeah, definitely. That, that is yeah. fantastic that you're still keeping a perspective that's at the heart of the organisation about yeah. other. It's not, it's not just yes. all about how we're managing, how is the process managing, how's the team managing, what's the impact on the fruitfulness yeah. of the people you're trying to make a difference for. That's, that's great. Yeah. Claire, I want to explore a little bit with you. you. You spoke about your husband's response first to the visit and yeah. then your vicarious response at the end yeah. of the phone and then practically when you went and visited on the ground and the, the uh, strong emotional response that it brings. Compassion itself is, is a, an emotion, something yep. that people feel compassion. How, how did it work for you and how do you think it can work for other people for that emotion to turn into action? Yeah, it's a really good question. Actually, something I've been thinking about just the last couple of weeks because the Greek word, and I'm not going to try and say it because I never can say it well, is actually it's a really strong emotion. It talks about gut-wrenching. Compassion mm. is gut-wrenching. And, you know, we know what um, gut feelings are like, the butterflies before you get nervous or um, that, that pit of your stomach. We talk about that. So compassion is a really strong reaction to something, and I can relate to that. I mean, mm. just... Uh, you could feel that dread and distress coming. Mm. But I think what we see from Jesus, because it talks about Jesus having compassion, Yes. what we know is for him to have compassion was costly because the only answer he had to that feeling was to die on the cross. Yes. And so I, what I'm feeling, what I'm d- discovering at the moment, that it's not enough to have compassion. Mm. You have to work out how you respond to that. Mm. It's part of our, as Christians, it's part of our duty to respond and that will be costly. Mm. It can't not be costly because it's such a big job that we have to do. So, yeah, and so then you have to work out for yourself what are the actions you want to take um, and what has God equipped you to do as well. I guess what I'm hearing in some of your comments, Claire, is that if, if it isn't intense enough an emotion to push you to action, then maybe you haven't felt it deeply enough. Yeah, that's a really good um, comment. And it's funny, I listened to a talk by a lady called Anne Voskamp at the beginning of the year and she quoted Bono from U2 Mm. and he said, charity is easy, justice is hard, Mm. but as Christians we're seeking justice. Mm. And so exactly if you haven't really got that strong emotion, it's easy to give out of your surplus. Mm. Um, and that might be your time, that might be your prayers, that might be your finances. It might be choose your path in life. Mm. But if we're looking for justice, if we're looking for the justice that God wants, mm. it won't be just out of surplus. It will be out of all that you have. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful and profound and challenging. Very challenging. Clee, you've also mentioned a couple of times during our conversation about in hindsight. <laughs> yes getting to the point where, and, and in fact, 
some of your reflections when you've been looking back, your, your comment has been, I, I might've made a different decision. Yeah. Uh, things might've been, if I'd known now what I knew then, it might not be. I, clearly there is that aspect of, you, know, you can see a little bit more clearly. What do you, how, how do you find a sense of God's direction in your life through those moments when you look back and it could have been different? Maybe it should have been different, but yeah. it wasn't. Where do yeah. you, how do you bring that before God? Yeah. I, I bring that before God for about five years, um, that same question, why I had little children. Mm. I found um, having little children a really hard time in my life. Mm. I'd gone from a world where you make things happen, you do tasks, you get results, whether it was as an uh, IT person in finance or even as a children's worker, mm. you see change. Mm. And then um, for those who have had little children or will one day have little children, um, it feels like every day is the same. Mm. You feed, you clothe, you play. Oh, and you oh, get yeah. up the next day and it happens again. Groundhog <laughs> Day. I, yeah, exactly, Groundhog Day. I struggled hugely. And um, I, I cried out to God regularly, if you've made me how you have, mm. why this? Mm. And if this is what you want from my life, then just change me. Like mm. make me love this. Like change me. It's not fair. And uh, this was a prayer day and day for many years and unfortunately, God didn't change me. I wish he had. Um, but what he did help me understand is that as a Christian, I know for sure what my end is. Mm. I know that the story, my story will end with Jesus returning with a new creation and new earth. Mm. And so actually the way you get there sometimes is not as important as holding on to that end. Mm. And the other thing that, I learned slowly is that my identity wasn't found in what I'm doing today. Mm. It was found in Christ and being a child of his. Amen. And that's important um, because you're right, looking back, maybe there were decisions I should have made differently, but that would not have changed who I am. Mm. Um, and so I think then you can look forward to him returning, yeah. knowing that you will be his child. Yeah. So, Yeah. Does that also give you hope in terms of the big picture of the work you're doing that for all the desperate poverty that you find in the Philippines and in other parts of the world, ultimately there will be a kingdom coming? Yeah, it definitely gives me hope. It also gives pers like, I'm like, well, we've got to do more because there's a kingdom coming and I want more to be part of it. But I think as I see their hope, because they have hope in little else all they do is hold on to their hope in christ yeah. my hope is um my faith grows because i realize that i don't hold on to that um as big as they do mm. yeah that's beautiful claire we're coming to the the end of, of our conversation but i wanted to take you right back we you yeah. went right at the beginning the first few sentence about the difference or i noted the difference between automation and robotics <laughs> Yeah, it seems to me that the, the last few exchanges we've just had, the last few sentences uh, where you've been talking about it's not what we do, not what I'm doing right now that is of importance or gives me importance, it's who I am. Yeah. And, and I wonder whether you have any thoughts, having been involved in that sphere of engineering that was about taking things that people would normally do and automating them and... and yeah. The things, the mechanics, the procedures that could be played in and out between a person and a machine. 
Yeah. Does that give you a perspective as to to the value, the inherent value of a human life, a human uh, person's identity? That's uh, a very tough question. Um, I think we see, if we go back to Genesis 1, we see a God who created a beautiful world. He gave order. He gave form. And then he created us in his likeness. Mm. So I, no matter what happens, no matter how much automation, how much artificial intelligence, no matter what we create, our creations will never have God's likeness. Mm. And so you can't take away that special gift that humanity has mm. and create it some other way. And I think everything we create is a poor representation yeah. of who humanity is. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's exactly how I was understanding yeah. your life journey, actually, as, you, as you've yeah. described it, that this notion that it, it's, it doesn't matter what we do because yeah. that could be done by something else, an engineered yeah. system. And it's not what we don't do if we don't have the resources or the opportunities because of our social context to do it. We're not denied value or dignity. We're not, we don't earn it because of what we do and we're not denied it because of what we can't do. We have it because of the fact that we are in his image, all of us. We just have to sometimes remind people they have it. Amen. What are you hoping for compassion in the, in the next, the next phase? I'm really hoping that the global church will feel the heart of God to serve the vulnerable around the world, Mm. that we will really reach out into, I mean, it's a great injustice that people live in poverty and like you were just saying, they might not understand their own dignity. Mm. Um, So I want this to be the mission of the global church. Um, Us in Australia and then working with um, the local churches throughout Mm. the world. So that's, that's my hope and desire. Claire, that's a fantastic vision for the CEO of Compassion to hold in your heart. And I am hoping that you can sow that into the the hearts of the members of your team and together disperse that across the church of God. Because I I think it is. And as you described, the notion of act justly. And and it's not necessarily about law and order. It is about equity and generosity and compassion. Yeah. Claire, it's been wonderful to talk with you. I hope God strengthens you for your task. Thank you, Brendan. Lovely to talk with you.